Support for Focus Black Oklahoma on the KOSU Podcast Network comes from the Black Church Traditions and African American Faith Life Program at Phillips Seminary. With a weekly chapel service celebrating Black History and African Heritage Month, online at wherefaithleads.com slash heritage. Oklahoma. I'm Ariel Davis. And I'm Colby Webster. In response to the summer 2020 protests for racial justice, Oklahoma lawmakers have passed a number of laws that embolden Second Amendment use to combat what they see as unruly riots and misguided use of citizens' First Amendment rights. In addition to these firearm laws, a number of protesters were charged with domestic terrorism and other dire charges. A recent wave of so-called Second Amendment sanctuary laws have recently been passed by Oklahoma lawmakers in direct response to the summer 2020 protests of the high-profile killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, as well as systemic racism and unjust deaths and treatment of black people around the world. Senate Bill 806, which creates the Oklahoma Citizens Protection Act, has been approved by Oklahoma lawmakers. The bill increases penalties against protesters blocking traffic and offers drivers no consequences if they attempt to drive through a crowd. Oklahoma Republican Senator Daryl Weaver from Moore, representing Cleveland County in District 26, wrote the bill saying, quote, peaceful protests is a right under our Constitution, but this bill is about violent riots that put life and property at risk, unquote. Another bill, Senate Bill 644, allows for municipal employees to carry concealed firearms on the job. The bill, written by Republican Senator Blake Stevens of Tahlequah, would allow cities to bypass liability of any loss, damage, or injuries that are caused by the possession or storage of a firearm. In addition, any employee authorized to carry a firearm would be immune from civil and criminal liability if acting in a reasonable and prudent manner, according to the bill. And Senate Bill 672, written by Republican Senator Casey Murdoch of Flint, allows individuals to carry loaded and chambered long rifles in a vehicle. All of this after a worldwide outcry of citizens, including Oklahomans across the state, taking to the streets to ask for criminal justice reform and accountability measures against police departments who use excessive force and deadly tactics at extreme rates against black Americans. Oklahoma City activist Jess Eddy was one of the protesters that hit the streets of OKC during the summer. He feels that the tactics that Oklahoma City District Attorney David Prater and the Oklahoma City Police Department officers used during the protests were out of bounds for the context of the protests. What happened on May 30th is we were having a peaceful protest doing a very minimal form of civil disobedience, stopping some traffic, and OKCPD tried to use violence and force to crush it. And we had folks on the ground communicating with deputy chiefs and a chief telling them, hey, hey, just stop the traffic because y'all, y'all are not going to, uh, it's not going to help anything y'all trying to forcefully remove people from this protest. We know what our civil rights are, our First Amendment rights. A street is a public forum and we're not moving. On June 26th, Prater issued 17 charges against protesters, five of whom received severe domestic terrorism charges for the burning of an inoperable police vehicle and property damage to some buildings in downtown Oklahoma City. Reverend T. Cherie Dickerson, director of Black Lives Matter Oklahoma City, recounts how two of those charged were minors at the time of the protests. The two that were charged that came later, the 17-year-old females, and they literally waited until the last one turned 18 and arrested the young lady at her birthday party and put both of them in jail. However, um, those two, those charges have been dropped with those two young ladies with actual, uh, and all charges have been dropped with them. 
So there are three people that are still dealing with terrorism charges. Two of those persons that have terrorism charges also have secondary charges of arson and obstruction. And one is just um, is straight terrorism. And those cases have not been resolved. Both Jess and Cherie feel that the tactics used by the Oklahoma justice system are infringing on Oklahomans' First Amendment rights to peacefully protest and that the charges are extraordinarily heavy-handed. Even Timothy McVeigh, who is a real domestic terrorist, didn't even receive those charges, which is ironic because it was literally about less than a mile from where he literally murdered 168 people and devastated the entire state, city, and nation because of his actions and the organizations that he's affiliated with, which we know are terrorist acts. And I don't want to um, diminish or exclude others that got other felony charges, but all of them were absurd, and I'm still not sure why D.A. Prater felt the need to literally punish and persecute people standing in their First Amendment rights. And with this new wave of Second Amendment sanctuary laws passing in direct response to these historic First Amendment protests for black lives, Cherie tells me how this hits her as an organizer on the front lines trying to make sense of it all. I still sit in amazement and awe and very disappointed with the choice of the DA and the judicial system in not acknowledging the fact that one, the anger, the outrage was totally appropriate. With the history um, and the current culture of state-sanctioned violence and peace police brutality that happens within Oklahoma, um, and we've seen a rise in it after these protests. I mean, my God, in November, there were four people killed by Oklahoma City Police Department in a matter of a week. And there was another one less than three weeks later, and there have been two, to my knowledge, this year. And statewide, that doesn't even include all of the numbers. In recent years, Oklahoma City and Tulsa Police Departments have, per capita, routinely entered the top five of officer-involved killings in the nation. Between 2013 and 2019, Oklahoma averaged second in the nation for the most police killings. Black residents were 5.5 times more likely to be killed by the Oklahoma City Police Department than white residents. Tulsa averaged a rank of fifth in the nation for most killings by police, with black residents being killed at 1.4 times the rate of white residents. According to MappingPoliceViolence.org, which had its Oklahoma City data verified by online news publication The Frontier after Oklahoma City Police Chief Wade Gurley disputed the numbers. According to the Educational Fund to Stop Gun Violence, there were 737 gun deaths in Oklahoma, including 70 children and teens in 2019 alone. Homicides comprised only one-third of gun deaths, with suicides comprising nearly two-thirds of gun deaths. Oklahoma has the 11th highest gun death rate in the country as of 2019. On March 11th, five Oklahoma City police officers were charged in the November 2020 killing of a 15-year-old boy. Cherie notes how it feels to bear witness to the lack of accountability in officer-involved deaths and legislative inaction. She feels more protests are on the horizon due to governmental disregard of dire statistics and community losses. They're more interested in targeting um, and prosecuting protesters putting targets on activists and advocates' heads that are leading a lot of these movements. And they are not ready for the revolution, which is here, and it is now a reckoning. And they're just going to have to deal with that. And some reconciliation and atonement needs to be part of this, but not until they acknowledge that it is them that escalates the situation. That's what happened on the night of the 30th, as well as what we saw on the 31st and consequently thereafter. And to realize that white supremacy is embedded within law enforcement agencies across the state, but especially within Oklahoma City Police Department. Allison Herrera explains how removing the phrase, quote, by blood, unquote, 
from the Oklahoma Cherokee Nation's Constitution has caused tension between tribal members and what it means for the descendants of slaves who arrived with the Cherokee tribe during forced removal. When Marilyn Van heard the news last week, she was stunned. Well, I, I was, uh, was very surprised, you know, to, uh, to read that. Van was paying close attention to the decision because she's running for a seat on the Cherokee Nation's Tribal Council. Last month, shortly after she did the routine task of filing her paperwork at the Tribal Nation's election office, her candidacy was challenged by another citizen. Why? Because Van is a Cherokee Freedman descendant. Freedmen were formerly enslaved people held by the Cherokee Nation before they were removed to Oklahoma on the Trail of Tears. This other citizen pointed to the word by blood in the Constitution, meaning that she didn't qualify. You know, we've come to the 21st century, and the Cherokee Nation is a tribe that, you know, has long been adopting um, other peoples into the nation to help the nation grow and stay strong. Van gained her citizenship in 2006, along with a few thousand other freedmen. Then, in 2007, Cherokee Nation voters approved a constitutional amendment, inserting the controversial language into the tribe's constitution. Thousands of other freedmen waiting to get their citizenship were effectively denied until 2017, when Van and others prevailed against the tribal nation in federal court. Cherokee freedmen were allowed citizenship, but the by-blood language remained on the books. To the extent that there was any ambiguity before, um, it makes it extremely clear that, you know, there are only, there's only one kind of Cherokee, and that's a Cherokee citizen. That's Cherokee Nation's Attorney General Sarah Hill. She asked the Supreme Court for a hearing to remove the language last month. Hill said the ruling was really about making sure the tribal nation's laws reflect the values of Cherokee Nation, which is looking out for one another. She said Cherokees are wrestling with their own history and that this decision recognized the promises made on both sides to honor the treaty they signed in 1866. And those promises were made directly to the Cherokee freedmen and their descendants. And the nation has an obligation to honor that. Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin, Jr., Cherokee Nation's leader, also wants to make good on promises made. Two weeks before the ruling, he issued a statement saying that Cherokee citizens must be equal under the law, regardless of descendancy, and have the right to hold public office. But not everyone is happy about this decision. And it's not because they don't support the Cherokee freedmen, although there is some anti-Black racism that exists in the tribal nation. Charlie Barnowski is a 32-year-old mother of three and a Cherokee citizen. She says leadership in the Cherokee Nation disrespected the process when they removed the words by blood from the Constitution. Um, the Constitution states that we as the people, we as the Cherokee people, are the ones that have the power to change the Constitution, whether that be by a vote of the people or by a constitutional convention. Barnowski supports the Freedmen, but she thinks what leadership did was illegal. Still, the ruling is a major civil rights win for the tribal nation, said University of Oklahoma law professor Tayawagi Helton. The court makes an incredibly powerful statement rejecting what it, uh, rejecting a relic of a painful and ugly racial past that the court compares to Jim Crow laws in southern states. The question that remains is whether or not leaders of the other four tribes who have treaty obligations to descendants of freedmen will look at this decision and grant citizenship to them. That's the Seminole Nation, the Choctaw Nation, Muscogee Creek Nation, and the Chickasaw Nation. For now, Van, who has always claimed and known her Cherokee heritage, says she's looking forward to running for a seat on the Tribal Council. We'll just continue to try to outreach to the people in hope that uh, sufficient people will believe that I've earned the right to represent them. It's not clear whether there will be a challenge to the ruling, but for now at least, the Cherokee Nation is clear that it wants to move on from this painful part of their history. For Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Allison Herrera in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. And now, headlines from across the state. An Oklahoma City police officer who killed an unarmed black man last December has been charged with manslaughter. 
Sergeant Clifford Holman shot Benny Edwards three times in the back during a disturbance call on December 11th, 2020. Edwards was tased twice and sprayed with gas before charging towards officers with a knife. He was changing direction to run away from the officers when Sergeant Holman fired his weapon. Edwards is reported to have suffered from mental illness. In December 2020, an Oklahoma senator proposed a bill that would criminalize citizens for shooting video or taking photos of police officers. Senator Paul Rosino of District 45 says the bill would only criminalize individuals who post information about officers with the intent to threaten, intimidate, harass, or stalk officers, and as a result causes, attempts to cause, or to be reasonably expected to cause substantial emotional distress or financial loss to that person or the officer's family or household member or intimate partner. The bill fails to articulate how intent will be determined. This bill comes in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests across the nation and the use of video recordings by victims and their families as a means of evidence. An Oklahoma state lawmaker used the phrase, quote, colored babies, unquote, this month in a debate about the fetal heartbeat bill, which is an anti-abortion bill. Republican Representative Brad Bowles said, quote, in 2017, 862,000 babies were aborted. 28% of those babies were colored babies, 240,000 black kids, 215,000 Hispanic kids. These kids mattered, and I'm here to advocate for them as well. Unquote. Bowles has since apologized for a statement saying, quote, It was a slip of the tongue that was not at all what I intended to say, nor who I am in my heart. Unquote. The term colored is reminiscent of a time in American history where black Americans were segregated to inferior public facilities by colored only signs. Oklahoma House Bill 2078 proposes a change to education funding, which has challenging outcomes for most Oklahoma schools. Currently, a district's funding is based on the current year's student population count or the higher number of the two previous years, with students who move potentially being counted by multiple districts. The bill would remove the option for using two years prior. Under this proposition, Oklahoma's rural and urban school districts would lose the most funding as compared to the state's virtual charter school network, Epic Schools, which would see an increase of $4 million in funding. Oklahoma City Public Schools and Tulsa Public Schools would lose $7 million and $3 million respectively, while smaller rural schools would likely lose nearly half, if not more than half, of their overall budgets. Those against the bill, including Oklahoma State School Boards Association, Oklahoma Education Association, Cooperative Council for Oklahoma School Administration, Oklahoma Rural Schools Coalition and Oklahoma Parent Legislative Action Committee note that this proposal comes at a time when schools need more stability. State Representative John Waldron, Democrat from Tulsa, said of the proposal, quote, it's going to accelerate white flight to the suburbs. It's going to accelerate the decline of many of our rural communities. It's going to leave large pockets of poor students, often black and brown, in even more poorly funded schools in already stressed urban or rural neighborhoods, unquote. Governor Stitt signed an executive order lifting the remaining COVID-19 restrictions for the state of Oklahoma. Although the majority of restrictions on businesses were lifted in June 2020, citizens were still required to wear masks when entering state agencies or buildings. Limits on public gatherings and on attending live sporting events were in place until mid-March. Governor Stitt encourages Oklahomans to use, quote, personal responsibility, unquote, in efforts to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. In the wake of the explosion at the Chinese Association in Nebraska and the destruction of the Children's Holocaust Monuments at the Jewish Federation of Tulsa, Bracken Clara speaks with members of both communities and uncovers the commonality of discrimination against Asian Americans and Jewish Americans. While overall crime dropped 7% in 2020, anti-Asian hate crime surged 149% in 2021. 
according to research from the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University at San Bernardino. And a 2019 report from the Anti-Defamation League found a 12% jump in anti-Semitic incidents, marking the highest number of anti-Semitic incidents since tracking began in 1979. And in late February, there was an explosion at the Nebraska Chinese Association in Omaha. Also in February of this year, memorial statues dedicated to the children murdered in the Holocaust at the Jewish Federation in Tulsa were destroyed. And, as if to underline the statistics, the week of March 14, 2021 saw two more stories surface focusing on incidents against Asian American and Pacific Islander communities, or AAPI, and the Jewish community. A gunman in Atlanta murdered eight women, most of whom are of Asian descent, and a Capitol Police officer was found with a copy of an anti-Semitic text used by Hitler's Nazis, among others more recent. With national and local incidents making headlines, I wanted to speak with members of these communities to connect and understand what these stories and statistics mean to them in their lived experiences. I spoke with Al Harahop, who identifies as Asian and is a lecturer at the University of Oklahoma in Norman and Andrew Spector, a member of the Jewish Federation in Tulsa and co-founder and program director at Tulsa Changemakers. While the trajectories that landed both in Oklahoma are vastly different, the stories they tell have much in common. Harahop has lived across three continents and arrived in the U.S. 20 years ago. He has lived in California, went to university in Arizona, and has called Oklahoma home for three years. Spector grew up in Massachusetts, studied at the College of Charleston in South Carolina, and moved to Tulsa with Teach for America in 2015. Because I grew up around Asia and Australia, when I came to the States, the definition of Asian was different. In California, I felt more anonymous because of the larger Asian population there. And then less so in Arizona and even less so here in Oklahoma. I grew up Jewish in Massachusetts, which has definitely been a different Jewish experience than my Jewish experience in South Carolina and then here in Tulsa. Even though I was one of actually very few Jews in my actual school, everybody knew Jews. People had a general familiarity with what it meant to be Jewish. While upon arrival in Charleston, Spectre came across a Christian Sunday brunch culture that he hadn't known in Massachusetts. I remember thinking to myself, where am I going? <laughs> and fortunately, my reaction wasn't fear in response to the ignorance that I had. It was an interest. So I sought out and built relationships and went to places of worship with people that I met that were not from my religious background. I wanted to know what it's like now, living in Oklahoma, within the context of the recent acts of hate perpetrated against their communities. I asked Spectre, compared to now, inside the pandemic, with conspiracy theories having been normalized, and in the midst of a resurgence of hate groups, how much he worried about anti-Semitism before. Really not at all. Even after attacks like in Pittsburgh, as I continue to learn more about the rise in anti-Semitism, the um, rise in hate groups in, in Oklahoma and in the, in the Tulsa area, I think that part of my personal growth has been becoming more aware of that I may not be as safe as, as I think that I am. And I think that becomes pretty clear when, when you recognize the kind of security that, that we have to have when I go to the synagogue. For somebody like me who grew up in a place where I felt safe and people knew what Jews were and I wasn't experiencing overt acts of anti-Semitism in the way that my dad, who also grew up in Massachusetts, was. The QAnon conspiracy and the things we're seeing today are sort of almost like a coming of age for me in terms of like, wow, this is like a real thing that I really need to pay attention to. I asked Harahop the same question, but with an AAPI focus. It's so difficult for me to give specific examples is because I don't feel any different now than pre-pandemic. There's a rise in anti-Asian hate crimes. That is for sure happening. But in terms of how I'm feeling about it, I don't feel less safe because I was already feeling unsafe. It seems that while anti-Semitism and anti-Asian violence are genuinely on the rise, it's more accurate to say there is a resurgence of long-held hatreds. That while we might see these as recent horrific things, the violence and hate has cycled through America even before it was a nation. Recent framing of the violence against Asians is something that the media spins as new or, or different because, you know, immediately post 9-11, that was anti-Asian sentiments to me, right? It's just a different part of Asia. 
it's not something that is more urgent than it already was before. And that to me is part of the problem. If we say this is, oh no, look at the rise, like that word, look at the rise in anti-Asian sentiment, that kind of erases all the anti-Asian sentiment that came before. I just wish that the framing would be this is now anti-East Asians. That's accurate. That would be accurate. And it wouldn't erase the anti-Asian hate that came before it. Since this cycle seems to be part of the fabric of the country we all share, what can we do to stop this from repeating? Parahop starts, and we finish with Spectre. This sounds really basic, maybe even cliche, but I think it all goes down to the willingness to spend time with different people. And that sounds deceptively simple. It's not that simple. There was a Pew Research survey done during the summer of 2020 when the protests really blew up last year. And it asked, it, it was problematic because it, it was only looking at black people and white people, but it was pretty telling that the large majority of white people do not have black friends. And I wonder about that across all groups. Like how many non-Asian friends do Asians have? How many friends and acquaintances even do each of us have that are different from us? there's anything that's truly exceptional, it's our vision of a pluralistic society where people from across countless backgrounds and identities can actually live together. That begins with telling a different story and equipping ourselves to understand and tell a different story. One that is not just hamburgers and hot dogs, but one that is about pluralism, that who we are is different. For Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Bracken Clark in Norman. <laughs>how one Tulsa activist is continuing the work of Leroy Chapman, the founder of the Center for Public Secrets, and his recent discovery of yet another Tulsa historic monument engraved with racism, and why he doesn't think the monument should be removed. We're not very far away from where we started, you know. In fact, we're exactly where we started. We just, the boom, the oil boom is over, and now we're left in the shadow. That's Tulsa activist James Taylor. He argues his city is stuck in the past, that white supremacy, a central force in its founding years, still reigns. James has had these issues in mind ever since he learned about the Tulsa Association of Pioneers Monument. It was moved to its current site, Owen Park, just west of downtown, in 1950. I don't know, just went to go check it out and just slowly started researching about it and uh, caught up on all the Leroy Chapman uh, work that he did. Chapman, who died in 2015, worked as a history recovery specialist. He's probably best known for an article he published in This Land magazine a decade ago. The piece, The Nightmare of Dreamland, exposed Tulsa founding father Tate Brady as a violent Ku Klux Klan-affiliated segregationist. And it kick-started conversations about the Tulsa places, a street, a theater, a district, a neighborhood bearing the Brady name. To promote this and other suppressed stories, Chapman founded the Center for Public Secrets in 2008. Two months ago, the center ran a piece on its website about the Owen Park Monument. The article, written by journalist Fraser Kastner, describes the structure as an eight-foot slab of stone that juts out of a small hill at the intersection of Edison Street and Maybell Avenue. Engraved in the stone is a list of the old-timers. These were members of the Tulsa Association of Pioneers who considered themselves city founders. Kastner describes these elite figures as segregationists, war profiteers, and land thieves. And he notes that the group included at least two Klansmen as well. The full slate of names, Kennedy, Archer, Clinton, Bynum, and others, is familiar to any Tolson. There's a Kennedy building downtown, for example, and G.T. Bynum is the city's mayor. 
For James Taylor, the goal isn't to erase these names, and it's not to remove the monument in a fast, no-fuss operation. The fuss is actually the guts of the whole thing. Like, we need the fuss. We need someone to get really mad and to tell us about the pioneers. And, like, we need all of these different points of view all at the same time. That's what the discussion is for. Like, that's what we need to move on, you know, like, or we're or we're going to celebrate old timers day every single year until we, you know, until we get past it. The head of the Owen Park Neighborhood Association, Matthew McCoy, agrees that the monument gives the community a chance to have tough discussions. You know, right now for me, I, I think it's really an opportunity for our community to have like a, a really great inclusive conversation that, that brings a diverse group of stakeholders together. You know, I think it's an opportunity for um, this neighborhood and, and other people in the area to convey their thoughts to the appropriate city leaders that will ultimately have to take action on, on this monument. He explained that while Owen Park residents started talking about the monument last year, the pandemic disrupted those conversations. I mean, about a year ago when this was gaining a little bit of traction, I mean, there was some discussion about it, but, you know, as, as far as neighborhood goes, Owen Park, you know, we were working on creating compassionate responses to an increased populace of people experiencing homelessness that were interacting with the neighborhood. And generally, we're just trying to help our, our other neighbors out. I mean, we've all had to feel the different effects of the pandemic. You know, we, we've discussed some of the, the correct ways to approach the issue. And, and right now, we're really limited to, to really Zoom as, as our, our form of communication. And it just didn't feel like a, a great way to collect a diverse group of stakeholders. So while the monument for now will remain, there are no plans to remove it. Matthew looks forward to addressing it when it's safe to meet face to face. So I really think that, you know, there's not one general sense of what to do next, I, but I do think that we need to start thinking about what is what is the process. You know, we have to have tough conversations when we want to live in a neighborhood. I think having a process that that really makes sure that, that stakeholders are included um, and everybody feels heard and, and everybody feels like they've had a chance to speak. So that way, whatever the, um, the outcome is there, it's, it's an equitable outcome for everyone. James, for his part, believes the monument should be made into a museum piece. I've met with Jeff Moore. He's the executive director at OK Pop. I think that it should go there and we should show culturally how it has affected, has kind of shaped where we are and, and use it, use artists to, to tell the story and to tell to tell all of that. I think it could be one of the coolest, most powerful things done correctly, and it would be hard to do, but it, I think a lot of people would see it. He ended our conversation on a philosophical note, citing a poet he encountered in his research on Tulsa's past. Edgar Albert Guest, I think is his name, and uh, he wrote two poems that were specifically um, just on topic about monuments, you know, and about how like uh, a person leaves, you know, their life is a monument. Like we don't need to build a monument for anyone who lived their life of real value. Like the life of value is the monument. Judging a person's life by the work they did and not the structures they left behind, this seems like a good way to rethink our relationships with our forerunners. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Nick Alexandrov in Tulsa. Coming up, a follow-up and deeper dive into FBO's third Solutions Journalism Network story concerning how the pandemic has affected 41% of Black business owners and how two Black-owned businesses in Bartlesville became outliers in a land of dreams deferred. Devin Williams has the story. I'm sitting in a coffee shop that could be in Portland, Oregon. There is pristine but rustic looking wood all around. The massive roasting machine is directly behind me and the aroma of today's freshly ground coffee has me alert and focused. Tyler Glenn sits directly in front of me. He owns Red Dirt Rubs, founded in 2018. This Bartlesville native uses a unique and versatile blend of seasonings that titillate the senses and make any ordinary meal excellent. Tyler is a youthful and passionate black man. The only thing spicier than his rubs are his perceptions of Oklahoma's black culture. 
As we chat about the challenges of being a business owner, our conversation shifts to Black Wall Street and the fervor surrounding the legendary area coinciding with the centennial of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. Tyler explains to me the contradiction of supporting the rebuilding of Greenwood while giving dollars to established corporate entities. Because people always want to use the whole, we're Black Wall Street, we want to be Black Wall Street. Well, if you look at that time, Black Wall Street was one. They were all one. Their pharmacy was black. Their doctors were black. Their lawyers, their nurseries, their schools. It was the support of their community. So when you don't support your community, you can't sit there and think it's ever going to be where it was. So that's why I use that whole notion of, like, oh, Black Wall Street. It's easy to put on a t-shirt. It's easy to watch a documentary. It's easy to put your fist up. It's easy to say this, this, and that. But in the same breath, you go to Champs, you go to Foot Action, you go to Sporting Goods. Despite his criticism, Tyler sees an ever-brightening future for Red Dirt Rubs and his beloved home state. 2021, a state takeover. I plan on taking over every town in Oklahoma. I've done in Bartlesville. I'm in Collinsville. I'm working the edges of Tulsa right now. I'll eventually be in Oklahoma City. But the plans are, I've named it, I've dubbed it the Oklahoma Takeover 2021. And then I definitely want to be the seasoning of the South is where I really want to be. I say that because I want to be the go-to seasoning. I say South because the South is where the higher number of minorities are in the United States of America. So I feel that I can reach more of my people in the South. I base most of my things off Southern heritage. So I'd like to keep it a Southern tradition as well. But I've shipped to 25 different states. I've been to Alaska. I've shipped to Michigan. I've shipped internationally. I've been to Kildare, Ireland. I've shipped to Australia, Sydney. I've definitely put all my eggs in the basket of Oklahoma. I feel that Oklahoma's next. We've always been next. I feel we are really far behind where we shouldn't have been far behind. We've kind of tried to mock Texas in a way. We've always tried to do that. We've tried to be Texas' little brother, and I feel that Oklahoma needs to find its own. We have our own identity to take out. We, we need to embrace more of our native identity and more of our native and black culture identity here in the state. And then we need to rely less on oil and rely on other resources we have. We're our beef capital almost. We have a lot of beef resources. We have things like that. We pride ourselves on a lot of sports programs, education-wise. We have a lot of great journalism here in this state. I just, but I do feel like uh, moving forward, I want to put my feet even more in Oklahoma. I want to double down on the state. I was born and raised here, so doubling down in Oklahoma is a big deal for me. Down the street in Bartlesville, I meet with Annie Saltzman. Annie owns the eatery by Three Kids and a Cake. Established in 2018, Annie has a bachelor's degree in business administration and spent nine years working in human resources in the steel and aviation industries. Admittedly, she expresses her ease working within industries that are dominated by white males. That isn't to say that as a person of color, she hasn't felt the effects of that culture. The thing I think about the most being a black woman is probably my hair. I feel like straight hair is more acceptable. You look more put together. So maybe that did translate into the corporate environment. I always had my hair straightened. I had long hair, just different than now with my natural hair. The eatery is a bakery bistro with colorful portraits of Jimi Hendrix, John Lennon, and Erica Badu that illuminate the space. The pastries, quiches, and croissants will excite your taste buds and make your New Year's resolution to lose that COVID-19 lockdown weight a true challenge. Speaking of challenges, in a small town like Bartlesville, the simple and rational act of requiring people to wear PPE can result in negative consequences for small businesses. The whole mask issue has been, you know, there are people who won't go into places if you wear masks. There are people who won't come if you don't wear masks. Just trying to navigate all of that while trying to keep my employees safe, while trying to keep our doors open, it's really heavy. It's heavy. Annie enlightened me about her motivations for protecting herself, her employees, and her business. For her, the decision to require her employees to wear masks was purely for survival. Staying open, bottom line, period, end of the day. It's just so tiring to hear people say, and you know, there are lots of different thoughts on this. You're scared, you're living in fear, I don't, I'm trying to stay open. And when someone 
contracts COVID, which happens, it's going to happen because of the amount of COVID in town. When you call the health department, do you wear masks? If everyone wears masks, it changes the dynamic of what has to happen when someone has COVID. So it is nothing more than trying to stay open, to keep people paid, to protect my employees who work up front because we don't have a mask mandate. There are no mask requirements. I can't ask my people who work in front to try to police that for people that come in. My front employees have always worn masks through the pandemic. Starting last November, we all wear them back in the kitchen because I think that's when it just got really bad. And I needed to make sure that we could stay open. That is what has driven <laughs> my decision here. Despite numerous new challenges brought by the pandemic, the eatery has thrived. With the support of the community and being able to secure PPP loans, unfortunately, there is a larger and ever-present threat to Annie and her business, the repercussions of being her authentic black self. Well, if we're just being honest here, on some days I feel like it's great. I feel like we do have the community support. And then some days I look out and I see things that are racist. I see things like people being upset about not the organization Black Lives Matter, but the concept of Black Lives Matter. I see things like that and it's disheartening for me. And I often wonder, is there really a place for me here? Because for me to be who I am, it's hard here because if people don't like your business here or if they don't like what you stand for, then they're done. So I've often told my husband, Sometimes I don't know if I can do this because I can't always be myself fully. And still, I have the weight of making sure my employees get paid, which means we need customers. But I have also the weight of being true to myself and speaking the things that I believe and the things that do impact my life and from being a black person. Do we have the support of the community? Yeah. Do I fear that we lose the support of the community if I say the wrong thing? Yeah. The future of the impact of COVID-19 on black business is uncertain at best. Entrepreneurs Annie Saltzman and Tyler Glenn are defying the odds. For Focus Black Oklahoma, I'm Devin Williams in Bartlesville. For our next piece, we highlight women performance artists helping to take on the incredible task of shaping the Tulsa Race Massacre into a hip-hop album. Autumn Brown introduces us to the women of the upcoming Fire in Little Africa project. Hip-hop is more than a genre. It's a culture. It serves as a representative medium of Black urban life in America. But when it comes to gender and music, hip-hop can often get a bad rap. Themes of homophobia, sexism, and male domination show that the music is powerful but not perfect. Though since its inception, women have been participants and practitioners of the art. Women like hip-hop artist T. Rush, who is a singer, writer, and someone who remains connected with world culture. T. Rush, Fire and Little Africa artist, talks about representation and hip-hop. It's major because, I mean, we have a voice and a lot of the times our melodic ways of expressing it can bring about a change or cause people to listen a lot more. Sometimes the dominance of a man can sometimes seem overbearing, even though it's a thing and it's normal to hear men in hip hop. For a woman, it's more graceful, I think. Even if it does come off hard, it's felt, I feel, a lot more coming from us as nurturers, I feel, yeah. Christina Suarez, also a Fire and Little Africa artist, is a trained vocalist and opera singer who has spent time in musical theater. She also talks about women in the industry. You know, as an artist and even like someone growing up always loving music and wanted to do music and be an artist, I, as a young girl, like I saw women, the Whitney Houston's, the Mariah Carey's, the Destiny's Child Beyonce's, just the Aretha Franklin's Shaka Khan. So they're a reflection of regular people. You know what I mean? I do think it is important, especially that we're shown in a positive light, because I do feel like most of the time it can be 
negative or what people would deem as negative, but it's really important. And then there's spoken word artist and poet Jerrica Wortham, who is part of Fire in Little Africa, a hip hop movement in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The experience was unlike anything I have ever experienced, going from room to room, just vibing out and just having fun, Um, being able to be welcomed into that space um, from an authentic perspective was just absolutely refreshing. There is also something to be said about leaving room for really just kind of breaking a thing down and really allowing ourselves to go deeper into a concept of of what it means. Like, what does it mean to be on Black Wall Street? Have we even, have we broke down what that means for a Black man, one generation post-slavery, to found a space that would rival any economic district of any race of people? And to do it, again, one generation post-slavery. Let's talk about that. Let's break down that this was a space that was built for us and by us. And then how do we acknowledge that and give honor to that? And then how do we grow from that? What do we do to move forward? What? How do we take that same energy now that we're here in a collective and move forward? And so I think that weekend really just spoke to all of that. Fire in Little Africa is a multimedia hip-hop project commemorating the 1921 massacre of Tulsa's Greenwood neighborhood, known as Black Wall Street. In March 2020, artists took over the former home of 1921 massacre mastermind and KKK leader Tate Brady. The energy of the mansion was intense because I did, you know, I had those those feelings of everything that went on that mansion. We probably weren't as welcomed (laughs) there, but we took over anyway. Flipping the home into recording studios, the album was created in massive studio sessions over a five-day period. Having to write things on the spot, sing things on the spot, and just working with other artists, just that collaboration process in general with so many different artists, like people who I know I've never met before. And that's, you know, working with them was like our first time meeting. So it was definitely freeing and like empowering too, because I would say and inspirational too, because it's like, it was more fuel, like being added to the fire, I guess, that fire of creativity. So it was really cool. I, yes, I feel like I'm still, like I still run off of that to this day. Fire in Little Africa is a movement that includes over 60 Oklahoma hip hop artists and the album releases in May, 2021. For me, it was just an exciting opportunity to participate in a beautiful experience. I mean, how often do you just get to go to a location and co-create with some amazing artists and just really just vibe out and just uh, have a great time. And so it was exciting to be a part of that. In addition to that, it's exciting to represent for the women, right? So it's like, we have something to say and there's definitely something to be said about adding a feminine persona or feminine energy into a space, right? So Um, We can speak to what it is to nurture something, what it is to support something, what it is to to use our powers for good. I was just happy to be a part of it. The energy was amazing, even though it was like the tip of COVID. So everyone was a little, you know, frightful of all of that. It was so much love. It was so much just whatever we heard, we felt it, we jumped in, we made it happen. No one was offended at all. If it's like, you do this part of the song, I do this part of the song, it may not, you know, it may work, it may not work. It doesn't even matter. We're just happy to be a part. I just loved it. I love the vibe. It was, it was amazing. In the early days of hip hop, women artists were essential to the genre's biology, unapologetically detailing their experiences of the world they lived in. But given the music industry's history, of marginalizing the contributions of women, it's easy to see hip-hop as a boys' club. Women artists like Roxanne Chante, MC Light, Lil' Kim, and Nicki Minaj, just to name a few, all have distinct variations in style, flow, and lyrical content. But what each woman artist has in common is a fiercely independent voice and the power to remain consistently and resoundingly herself. The history of women in hip-hop has developed in the same way as hip-hop itself, with women employing storytelling and metaphors to get important messages across. Women have adopted rap to tell their own truths for decades, 
And the women artists on Fire Little Africa are using hip-hop to sonically bring to life the history of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. The idea of sonically telling it, it's just, it's genius, to put it simply. One of my favorite concepts is the idea of edutainment. How often is music used to really not only entertain, but to educate? From the very young age, we were no different than when we were two and three and four. You want a child to learn something, you put it in a song. You put it in a way, in a melody that allows them to, to repeat and to have joy in the, in the process. And that really cements it into their mind. And so taking that elementary concept and putting it at a scope of processing and breaking down real life experiences, breaking down traumas, breaking down victories, breaking down all of the pieces that go into acknowledging the history here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, acknowledging the history of Black Wall Street, acknowledging the Greenwood District past, present, and future. Of course, if you're wanting to make real change and you're wanting to really inform the masses in large number, you do that through music. Hip-hop music prevails because of its authenticity. And for spoken word artist Jerrica Wortham, remaining true as an artist and true to herself is gravely important. If we want to really make space for women artists, then we need to allow them the opportunity to show up as who they are. Men are able to say what they want to say, however they want to say, whenever they want to say, and it's okay. Allow women that same, that same right to just show up as who they are. And today I might want to tell you about the policies that are absolutely dead wrong in my community. And tomorrow I might want to tell you that I look sexy and I feel good and I am operating in my feminine energy and you can't play with me, okay? For T. Rush, she sets the standard by remaining an authentic artist who is committed to her craft. No, I ain't playing no games. <laughs> I know what it is. Like, no, nah, I'm, I'm very, like, I'm cool, but I'm, like, strictly to, this is what we came to do. Let's get it done. I mean, afterwards, it's like, hey, the fun, but I'm, I'm in and out, do what I need to do. And it's not a whole lot of inappropriate, you know, behaviors or anything like that. It's just when you give that type of energy, you receive that back and you get a lot of respect from it, so... I keep it where it needs to be. And for Krishina, she embraces her flaws and wants others to welcome their genuine selves into their art. I've prided myself on embracing like who I am and where I come from. And I think that that is reflected through just what we do as artists. I just, I don't know. I, I definitely just have, I've learned to love myself and appreciate who I am because nobody's perfect. And I think that people need to hear that. Women artists in hip hop reflect a wide diversity of experiences and points of view, but they are often discounted and underrepresented. Women aren't always given the mic, but when they are, they prove to be just as talented. Well, you know, this is really an interesting space for me to be in personally. I am actually, I typically define myself as a spoken word artist. This new experience of putting that to music and inviting out in those regards, I mean, that's really, it's new to me. And so I'm excited for that growth. I'm excited for that expansion. With that, I am also so very proud of the other women that were a part of this project because when I say they brings it, they bring it. And mm -hmm. they can rival any man on any track, point blank and period. Have you heard Bambi? Have you? Oh my goodness. There's not a thing that she posts or shares that doesn't deserve a gazillion fire emoji signs. Like that's just who she is. And you can put her against any MC and it's going to be what it is. Like she's just gonna gobble them up and that will be that. And so it's a beautiful thing to be able to see women come into a space, bring their own unique perspectives and, and kill it, point blank. Women artists of Fire in Little Africa include rappers Tizzy and Bambi and singers Ayla, Asha, Krishina, and T. Rush, and host Ali Shaw. For Focus, Black Oklahoma, I'm Autumn Brown in Oklahoma City.
Cassandra Slade has our last story about the phenomenal things Black women can do. Women's History Month is coming to an end, but their almost superhuman powers carry on. We women are magical creatures. We can emphasize, create, or make a body part disappear. Thank goodness for the invention of Spanx, YouTube tutorials, and contour makeup. We truly can be every woman. It just depends on the tools that we use. If you could have seen the magic that me and my best friend created when we realized her dress had um shrunk before the wedding, you would be asking for the spells we conjured to get her in that dress. While we are creative, I do have to say though, ladies, we are doing a bit too much with the eyelashes. No one wants to look like Mr. Snuffleupagus, okay? Ever heard of the village concept where the whole village takes care of the children? This concept is kept in balance by women. I learned the art of the village from my mom and my aunts. Everyone thinks that moms have eyes in the back of their heads, but no, they don't. That, my friend, is a village. When I was a child, I felt there was nowhere I could go without my mom knowing. I felt her spies, I mean, also known as the neighbors, aunts, and everyone else, were always around. I complained to my mom, and her response was, if you wasn't doing anything wrong, what does it matter? Check this scenario. My best friend Shelly and I are walking to the store. We say hello to Miss Gibbs, one of my mom's spies, and buy some red Kool-Aid. Leaving the store, we see my aunt. She asks us if we want some pop, and of course we say yes, as soda was not allowed in my house. Walking back to my house, my neighbors, Mrs. Driver and Mrs. Rosemary, both ask us what did we buy. Kool-Aid, we exclaim in unison. At my house, Shelly and I finish our pop, and we proceed to dye our hair with the red Kool-Aid. My mom comes home. She sees the mess we've made. She sees the Kool-Aid on our scalp and shakes her head. My mother says, I wish somebody could see you all like this. I list to her all the people that we passed on our way home. My mother takes one look at me. I think flames are behind her eyes. Then she got on the phone with the village and told them what we did. From that day forward, I realized that being trusted by the village was a privilege. And I kept hearing, try to get another one over on me by her village. I, in fact, never tried to get another one over on my mom's village again. I remember there was a woman in the store in front of us, and her tag was out. I saw my mom lightly tap the lady on the shoulder and tuck her tag in. I asked my mom, wasn't she upset when you saw her tag? My mom turned to me and said, sometimes every queen needs a little help with her crown. This is a measure of friendship and tenderness that women display and that I love. Adjusting the crown in quiet without praise is a form of love women who are raised in the village know. My aunt needed this kind of help one time in church. We are sitting in the pews and my aunt was feeling the spirit. My cousin and I were avoiding eye contact with anyone in church, trying to melt into the scenery. It was time for the altar call and my cousin and I knew my aunt was going, as this was her thing. Of course, we weren't going, but my cousin noticed my aunt's slip was showing. Before we could grab her to tell her about the slip, she was walking down the aisle. My cousin and I followed her, trying to get her slip and blend in. Full into the spirit, her slip was almost falling off. My cousin and I were laughing and walking down the aisle behind her, trying not to be obvious. As the slip completely falls to the floor, my aunt, without missing a beat, steps out of the slip. I kick it to my cousin, and she slides it behind one of the flower pots by the altar. See, sometimes everyone just needs someone to help them adjust their crown. Looking at all the women I'm connected to, I realize they are resilient, creative, stubborn, smart, quiet, loud, supportive, outspoken, caring, and so much more. I value the friendships that I have in each one of them in its own uniqueness. We may not talk often, but we can pick up wherever we left off. On a short layover in Atlanta, I ran into a girlfriend I had not physically seen in 12 years. But when we saw each other, that vibe returned, and although it was a 30-minute conversation, we crammed our lives, our ups and downs, into that conversation, and both of us fully enjoyed it. That's a connection that women develop from being sisters in the soul. People tell me all the time that women mature and are smarter than men at earlier ages. My 14-year-old is truly always thinking ahead of the game. She is so smart, she encouraged her dad to get her a cash card because she didn't want to carry cash around. I mean, who knew cash was heavy? One day, an Amazon package showed up at the house which I didn't order. She promptly said, oh, that's mine. She pulled out the wireless headphones, and when I asked her how, she said, oh, she used a cash card her dad had given her to order it off of Amazon. <laughs> what thinking outside of the box? Mind you, this is the same child that if you asked her to find something in the room, she would look high and low and never see it. Women influence change. We are masterminds behind so much. During this pandemic, 
our capes have been flowing in the wind. Women already wear so many hats, sister, friend, nurse, teacher, shopper, activist, even PPE strategist. March is Women's History Month, so when you see another woman, give her a smile, a nod of some type of acknowledgement. That quiet nod speaks volumes. Ladies, love on yourself. Live your life loudly. Wear what you want. Eat good food. Dress up for that Zoom call. Decorate your mask. Women supporting women is the coolest thing I've witnessed, and it doesn't take a slip up or a slip falling to do it. Focus Black Oklahoma is produced in partnership by KOSU Radio, the Tulsa Artist Fellowship, and Tri-City Collective. Our theme music is by Moffat Music. Our contributing music artist on this broadcast is Joy Harjo. The associate producers of Focus Black Oklahoma are Bracken Clark and Ali Shah. Our executive producer is Koresh Ali Lansana. Visit us online at focusblackoklahoma.com and kosu.org. You can also follow us on Facebook Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. FBO is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, NPR One, and NPR.org. Support for Focus Black Oklahoma on the KOSU Podcast Network comes from the Black Church Traditions and African American Faith Life Program at Phillips Seminary. With a weekly chapel service celebrating Black History and African Heritage Month, online at wherefaithleads.com slash heritage. Hi, I'm Matthew Berriapa, host of KOSU's music podcast, No Cover. There, I have conversations with musical artists, like how black musicians are creating music at the intersection of race and Oklahoma. Why do we have these like low-key racist like specifications for how we classify art? When I think of the question, what is the soundtrack of the Black Lives Matter movement? I can't think of any other place but Oklahoma. Listen to No Cover on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts.